Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Star Trek depicts a utopian future, but how far is that future bound up in the idea that technology and inevitable and progressive technological advancement will end up saving us? How does that theory, that technological and political progress move hand in hand, sit with contemporary progressive thought? Can scientific innovation drive or even substitute for cultural and political progress? And are these ideas regressive or even dangerous? On today's Mirror Universe podcast, we discuss how far the gears of the machine can drive the wheels of progress. And we're joined by a special guest, Dylan Roth of the podcast, Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe? Welcome, Dylan. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you. I think this is uh, really cool. I know you're also a massive Trek fan and write about it frequently. That's (laughs) hence you being on the show. We also had you on my other podcast, What Mad Universe, at one time. That was a treat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with me as always, uh, I'm Adam Prosser, and with me as always is Douglas McDonald Norman. Hello. Hello. Okay, so yeah, the the question that we wanted to dive into today was the idea that um, Star Trek, the amount of faith that Star Trek uh, puts in science and technology. Uh, Let's uh, start with you, Dylan, but I think it's fair to say that one of the big animating and consistent ideas of Star Trek, if you would agree, maybe you disagree with me, but I would say it's one of the few things that's been really consistent across Star Trek is that there's always a belief that um, there's a technological or scientific solution for everything. Would you say that's true? I would generally agree with that, yeah. I think that it's interesting the way um, that fans nowadays, especially as we talk about like the progressive fan base that really uh, embraces Star Trek and Deep Space Nine in particular, like like to try and examine the causation uh, between technology and social progress, uh, usually kind of in um in like back and forth ways. Like um, I, I like conversations about how the post scarcity economy of Star Trek is what kind of can help to create the sort of kinder, gentler humanity, uh, which they talk about on Deep Space Nine a lot, right? Siege of AR five five eight. You you take away the uh, you take away the replicators and you end up with a more primitive, more violent person. Um, so that tends to be the angle that I I kind of uh, favor regarding that relationship. But there's so much room for nuance. Douglas, you have uh, thoughts on that? Look, I tend to agree. Obviously, we're talking about nearly sixty years worth of content written by a large number of people from a large number of perspectives. There have been times at which Star Trek has tried to grapple with the limits of science and technology through the exploration of spirituality on Deep Space Nine, through some elements of Chakotay's character on Voyager. But by and large, Star Trek is 
built around this idea of technological progress both as inevitable, the idea that society follows a number of inevitable stages in an inexorable and linear march towards progress, and with the idea that plenty makes for better people, that Star Trek, the Star Trek future isn't just a product of political revolution or economic revolution, it is that the end of scarcity makes people better. And I think that idea is both fascinating and one that in some respects is, as Dylan has noted, deeply troubling for contemporary political progressives because <laughs> it, 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 it stakes out a position which I think sits uncomfortably with some of the world we live in today and some of what we now accept about the way the world is set up and in particular the relationship between different cultures and different nations. Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, no, uh, that is exactly, I think we're all in agreement about that. That's what we wanted to talk about. I will say one thing about Star Trek, well, two things actually, uh, in the relation to that. They are fairly consistent. You don't see a lot of Star Trek, I can't, correct me on this if you think of one, but I can't think of a lot of Star Trek episodes that are, wow, technology advanced too far and it destroyed them. Like, in it, in as much as it does that, the emphasis isn't usually on the technology. They have something like the Doomsday Machine and the original... Uh, oh, yeah, I was going to say the Doomsday Machine. But again, the, the emphasis there is on war specifically more than technology. And I think that's the, the big thing with Star Trek. They do tend to go back to the idea that um, you have to be ready for technology. They do hit that beat uh, a few times, especially on the original series. I think that actually fell by the ironically enough i think it fell by the wayside a bit more and more in um uh next generation uh like they don't you don't see as many stories about well technology has progressed too far um but um and uh, people must be ready for technology and so forth like and so forth uh you get the episode uh, i've forgotten the title but the one where data gets amnesia on a primitive planet and starts trying to teach them science and they form a mob and try to lynch him and again it's the sense of like well if he just let them teach if he just if they just let him teach him technology teach them technology everything would have been okay yeah i think that um there i was thinking about this you know just kind of like mulling it all over to prepare for the show and it occurred to me that as much as star trek is consistently pro-technology i think it's generally anti-automation i think that that tends to be the line especially going back to the original series Star Trek, the original series, frequently has Kirk and company butt heads with machines designed to think and live for you, right? And that's always bad. Uh, I think of the Doomsday Machine. Sorry, I think that's the Doomsday Machine. I think of the Ultimate Computer. Uh, I think of Landru in Return of the Archons. These are situations where a person, where people have decided that we are going to abdicate responsibility of, for living to this machine or making decisions for us, right? And we're going to take that away from us, and now we're just going to do what this machine has to say. And this kind of thing continues, I think, um, throughout Next Gen, but I think you're right that there's less of it. I, but I think of, like, the one really clear, this is a thinking machine that's good, that Star Trek gives us, is Data. And Data has no purpose. Data's job is not to do anything for anyone else. Data's only mission is to be a person. And... I think that that is like a really key distinction that is why he's not taking anything away from anybody. You could fill all of these starships with datas and end up with a more efficient starship. And there's a whole episode about why we're not going to do that. So 
I think that that's where I think the line is. We want to use technology in a way to expand human experience and human potential, but we don't want to use technology in a way that is going to replace the act of living or the act of working even, depending on what kind of work that is. I completely agree with that. And the only thing I'd add to that by respect to the original series in particular is A Taste of Armageddon, the one where literally technology has developed... For, it could be characterized as an example of technology having developed further than human morality to the point where it has literally replaced war. The reliance upon technology as a substitute for lived experience to the point where people are expected to passively um, passively enter the disintegration chamber. I think that reinforces exactly what you're talking about, Dylan, this idea that technology is important but not to the extent that it allows people to become alienated from lived reality, not to the point where it becomes a substitute for lived reality, which in turn in next gen, I think the the prevailing example of Star Trek being cautious of technological advancement and cautious of technological substitution for human experience is, of course, the holodeck, with Barclay's reliance upon the holodeck as a substitute for a real life or with cons- the continued emphasis throughout each series that the holodeck isn't real, that it's this alluring fantasy you can live in, but that there is a meaningful distinction between what technology can create and simulate for you and actual lived experience. So while Star Trek consistently embraces the possibility of technology, there's this continued reiteration that there is a bright line emphasis between what is real and human and lived and organic and the simulacra that technology can create for you. It can improve your life, but it can't be a substitute for it. Um, it's interesting that in that regard, actually, that Dylan, you mentioned that the one example of a thinking machine on Star Trek is data. Is data. And I suppose it's interesting that that excludes the Doctor from Voyager. And I, I think that's by design even after seven seasons of consistently proving that data is worthy of rights and recognition, Voyager remains deeply equivocal as to whether the Doctor is the most interesting man in the world or a nightlight. (laughs) The idea that he is in some sense, he may be someone who is entertaining to hang out with, who has passions and hobbies of his own, someone who is a friend, but at the same time, someone who is still in a meaningful sense, not real. And so I think Star Trek, that, that there is, it's not that Star Trek is sceptical of technology or regards technology as going too far. It's that it regards there as being this fundamental limitation on what it can be. Oh, I just wanted to say that when I said that, I had actually, I had not considered the Doctor, and that's on me. But I do think that it's an interesting uh, sort of range to throw in that because a Doctor was created to serve a very specific purpose. He's supposed to be a Doctor and he's supposed to be a tool, right? And over time, basically because he's allowed to run far beyond what was ever tested for his software, he becomes a person. And it's only once he has an interest and value and like uh, a will beyond, okay, pick up this tricorder, heal this illness, that you start to talk about, all right, are we dealing with a piece of technology that is something to be used for our gain as people? Or are we talking as a person who has to, in that like classic sort of Kantian ethos that Star Trek loves, has to be treated as an end in himself? Uh, and it is really weird that it takes so long for even like Janeway to acknowledge doctor the Doctor's personhood. <laughs> but uh, we can... That has more to do, I think, with Voyager as a television show than with Star Trek as a universe. 
All I am adding is that I've seen the episode where the Doctor has daydreams, and in a meaningful sense, no matter how sentient he gets, the Doctor remains an absolute tool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, there's two other things. It's it's actually, and and I completely agree, you're you're right that whenever, especially the original series, uh, creates an almighty god computer. We talked a bit about this in one of our previous episodes. Uh, You know, it's always trouble. Uh, to, so to be ruled by an all-powerful god computer is always bad in the Star Trek universe. And um, it's also true that, uh, and like I say, I think with things like Taste of Armageddon, again, the emphasis is more on the military aspect than just technology in and of itself. I think, and of course, this is a Cold Warrior series, and that's coloring everything very heavily, I think. Um, more than just, well, what about a perfect automated it's not an automated piece. It's an automated war. And that is, I think, a crucial distinction for Star Trek. Um, it's funny that two of the big... And, and Star Trek is, as you say, um, it's always in favor of artificial intelligence and like, oh, they, ha- they should have rights. If they, if they start to become like people, then we should treat them like people. Um, two of the big uh, things that play on the idea uh, that we're talking about um, in the post-TOS era, interestingly enough... Uh, the Borg, uh, the original point of the Borg, they've sort of morphed and shifted thematically and metaphorically over the years, but the original point was that they were uh, the reflection of the Federation in that they were the triumph of technology over humanity rather than vice versa, and Federation was supposed to be technology subordinate to humanity, and the Borg were literally uh, techno-fetishists who got so techno-fetishy that they subsumed their individuality. Uh, That, again, that got shifted a little bit and they got more caught up in the in the collective idea uh but that's and the 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 i guess imperialist idea uh but they you know that is the original intention of that and then of course with picard we see a race of datas essentially coming into being uh and those are datas who are made for a specific purpose and it goes badly precisely and i douglas i I think you still haven't seen picard have you is that is that right I've seen season one. I have not yet seen season two. Oh. Okay, then you've seen the crucial thing with Picard. And it, uh, uh, interestingly, that season does really get into these uh, concerns about artificial intelligence very heavily. But again, the the implied issue here is that they were using Data's as, worker, as a worker cast rather than uh, as acknowledging their personhood. Um, and that is sort of where they started to get into trouble. Um in that regard as well. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's, there's a bit of a, a leeriness of uh, artificial intelligence in Picard that you don't necessarily see in other Star Treks. Again, maybe a little bit in the original series, you'll see bad androids, uh, the guy from uh, what are little girls made of and so on. Uh, but, um, but again, but again, that's more just sort of a, a an infiltration thing than a technology is bad. It's they're they're a they're a tool for the story in that regard. Uh, Dylan, what what do you think about the 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 androids in Picard? Do you, do, like, how does that relate to this? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that they're the synths are clearly designed to be like a a a like dumbed down, non sentient sort of. Uh, we're allowed to do this because they're not fully data uh, type situation. I I find that kind of weird and uncomfortable um and obviously it came to a bad end and anybody who anybody who had lived the history of star trek would know it was going to uh it's uh but i feel like they sort of exempt themselves from the uh from the whole equation by being we're told in the text that they're not people and we have to accept it because 
we we have to trust that they wouldn't, after all the big deal they made out of making sure that data is rights recognized, wouldn't just make an army of datas. They're clearly written as if they are at like a level of a level of like discourse lower than our modern chatbots. Like these are neutered intelligences, right? Um, it's still messed up to do. Uh, I think it's it's weird. Of course, you always have the box on wheels argument. Is it only weird because it's you know it, it it looks like a human being and you know we can, uh, but I think there's there's a lot about Picard that doesn't work. But <laughs> um, I think that might be all I have to say about that one. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think I mean look, I've only seen season one. Um, the sheer vitriol with which season two has been met has been a factor in why I have not devoted 10 hours of my time to watching it. I do... I'm consistently willing to give season one of Picard credit for trying things that didn't work because so much of... Again, this is maybe just part of the generation that I'm from. Having grown up in the late 90s and early 2000s and having grown up in a Trek fandom that reacted in such a vitriolic way to Voyager's aesthetic conservatism and to early Enterprise's aesthetic conservatism, which Adam and I talked about in our previous episode, which as of recording hasn't gone up yet. The fact that Picard is, for all its faults, not especially conservative in trying big, bold things that don't work, I think counts in its favour. And one of the, and the idea of ask, asking, you know... Who is actually cleaning houses in the Trek universe? Who, what does it mean? The actual practical reality of what is it going to take to build a rescue armada, reckoning with, I suppose, the substratum of how the Star Trek universe works. They're interesting questions to ask, even if the answers that it comes up with aren't particularly satisfying or thought through. And that, I think, ties to an interesting thing about technology, the question of... The relationship between political progress and the idea that of technological convenience is it going to is the leftist future going to be made possible by labor saving devices that we are going to have plenty within which to uh, become the best versions of ourselves or is that idea ultimately has has that idea ultimately been superseded by what's happened in recent decades is this idea that labor saving devices are going to lead to a better future of ourselves has that been overtaken by the fact that our labor-saving devices have made us cretinous online trolls? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I think this is a good time. I wanted to get all fancy here and talk a little a bit uh, like, uh, again, I, I always like to do this. This is what I do on my other podcast as well. So I, I like to talk a bit about the historical context here because it is really interesting to me uh, how we arrived at that idea. Star Trek didn't just come up with it. Um, it is very much markedly part of the evolution of science fiction over the last hundred years, even longer. Um, Basically, um, uh, there was a group uh, in the post-World War II era called the Futurians. Uh, You know, I don't claim to know a lot about them, but they were very dominant in, uh, or they had a big role in science fiction, uh, I think coming into the 60s especially. Um, And um, they were attempting to sort of bring leftist ideas into science fiction. Uh, And I think the basic ideas that weren't... uh, full-on new wave science fiction that fed into Trek came out of the Futurians to a large degree. And things like the Twilight Zone as well. I think that was just sort of the cultural uh, mindset of the 60s. 
Uh, and it, it was ironically, it was kind of a develop. Some of them apparently were actually full on communists, uh, but they were certainly leftists. And it's interesting because you can see a shift here. Uh, I, again, I know you want to talk a bit about communist <laughs> Marxism in a moment, uh, Douglas, but um, you can see like when Marxism was developed, it's it's very much uh, it's very heavy on the science. It's very much like we're the we're a we're a post enlightenment philosophy. It's about science. It's about the progression of mankind and how we're going to evolve. And this is, you know, it's tied very heavily to politics. But they did have this idea of like, well, we're creating new inventions and we're building new automation and we're doing like there's a there's a very strong, for lack of a better word, science fiction utopianism running in Marxism right from the beginning. Uh, there was a thing called uh, Cosmism that existed in Russia, where they, uh, it, I believe, it's what uh, that guy Tsiolkovsky. Uh, had his idea, which of which has a a, a ship on Trek named Ill-fated, after him, yeah. <laughs> named after him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because I believe he's the one who came up with the idea of a, a space arc. Like, oh, if we're going to travel uh, hundred millions of light years, we're going to have to build a big space arc and launch it into space. And some other a- big sci-fi astrological ideas. Apparently, that was a big. Uh, idea feeding into the Russian Revolution at the time. And even Lenin apparently was heavily inspired by what's technically a science fiction book called What is to be Done. Uh, although, again, that was more political sci-fi, as it were. Uh, but like th- that was inspiring uh, Marxists. And then when the communist revolutions kicked in the first half of the 20th century, they were definitely thinking, among other things, along the lines of, oh, and also one of the things we're going to do is build this crazy, shining, gleaming utopian future where we're all uh, served by robots, as as they'd say nowadays, fully automated, luxury, gay space communism. Um, that was that's that's seeded in Marxism from very early on in an interesting way. As you get to the post-World War II era in the West, uh, you see it start to disentangle itself from the explicitly Marxist, and especially in pop culture, you see those ideas are still there, and they're still arguably progressive, although they can be co-opted by conservatives. But they're, they're, it's much more about the idea of um, we can build a great shiny future technologically more than politically. And um, I think that's kind of what we get to when we talk about Star Trek, how it it's slight. It started to slide away from the political ramifications and into the technological ramifications because it's like, well, maybe we don't need to get into these big nasty discussions about politics and revolution. Maybe it could just be cool technology that'll fix everything, right? Um, so that's actually something that uh, I think played a big role in Star Trek, and then as it evolved further into the '90s, providing a perfect bridge between that discussion of communism and that and the discussion of the Star Trek future is a book by Francis Spufford called Red Plenty, which is really one of my main motivations for doing this episode. I'm happy for basically just the two of you to talk once I've had my chance to plug Francis Spufford's Red Plenty. (laughs) Um, I know very little about communism or Marxism beyond just sort of a lay observer level. And so, yeah, my contribution to this debate is principally going to be focused on Francis Spufford's Red Plenty. The central premise of Francis Spufford's Red Plenty is what if central planning in the Soviet Union had been accompanied by advances in computing technology? That is to say, if the top-down industrialization and mechanization of the Soviet economy, which ultimately fell prey to the inefficiencies of central planning with the information and resources available to the Soviet Union at that time, was accompanied by modern or more modern computing technology such that it could function more efficiently. That is so that you could conduct central planning with the aid of instant 
automatic feedback as to which areas need resources, which areas have resources to spare. What if the flaw in central planning was not that it was an inherently defective idea, but that in the absence of modern computing technology, there simply wasn't the information flow that was necessary to allow it to function. And so it it is some, somewhere between a series of short stories, a novel, and a series of essays, but it functionally examines an alternate version of the late 1950s and early 1960s in which computer technology allows for this brief golden age by which central planning can actually provide a high standard of living and consumer services to individuals in a way that functionally didn't happen with the information poor inefficient central planning that existed in our reality. It functionally creates a future that does not look a million miles from some visions of how the Federation works, the idea of a, an economy that is once based upon plenty and which rejects um, capitalism. And so that bridges perfectly to that idea. What if the problem with Soviet communism or with the economic ideas of Soviet communism was simply that it was an idea that outpaced the ability of technology to give effect to its doctrines? It's a really interesting thought experiment, albeit one that even in Red Plenty ends in tears because the political deficiencies of the system ultimately override and outtake its economic advantages and the whole thing falls apart. Um, but of course, that brings us to Star Trek, <laughs> a, a series of consistently good ideas overtaken by brutal realities. First of all, this book sounds fascinating and I should check it out. Um, I think it's interesting. Francis Spufford's Red Plenty. I got it here in the show notes. I'm gonna copy it down. The um, I am, I'm always intrigued by uh, the the way that the Federation's sort of culture around like what it is that drives them. Like we're told what doesn't drive them, right? Especially the next generation. We have the famous speech in the neutral zone where Picard talks about how we're no longer driven by the desire for things, and what we want to do is to improve ourselves. And Deep Space Nine, in, in the cards, there's the whole joke about how vague that is and how impossible it is to really kind of put that into a practical mindset as a viewer. Like, what is that? So what, what it means is we don't need money. It's like, okay, well, then you're not going to get that baseball card, Chief. It's, uh, but um, I, I always think it's interesting that, like, in the future of the Federation, you know, the main, the technology that's really, like, most... I guess the power source is the main thing, the ability to be able to basically create limitless uh, electricity, limitless power to do to power this technology that seems like it's it's so incredible that it can violate what we think of as the law of physics today. But there are replicators that can make you food, and you will never go hungry. But people still cook, um, and it, it's it's because it's an art that people want to do, or because it gives them purpose. I want to have a restaurant, right? Um, the technology. To the uh, the technology of the time has made the idea of a restaurant obsolete. You don't need one in anything other than the social construct, right? Um, I think I've gotten a little bit far afield with what you're talking about with Red Plenty, uh, but I think I think it's interesting to when we look at the world as it is. Thinking about that word plenty, there's the there's the sort of uh, myth that we're the sort of uh, capitalist realist myth that we're fed that there isn't enough to go around and we have to fight over it, when in fact it's a really big, really lush, really beautiful planet for now, 
And if we were to allocate resources based on need and means, as a computer could do, there's the idea that we would no longer need to be playing a constant tug of war over uh, who has who's going to have more food than they need and throw half of it away and who's going to starve to death, right? And of course, we talked about how Star Trek warns against thinking machines that will do that for us. But there are, of course, lots of examples in Star Trek of computers benefiting uh, uh, being being benefit. The computer of the Enterprise is doing a lot of stuff automatically. You could not travel through space at 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 you know thirty times the speed of light or whatever warp factor six is unless you had that level of computing power. So, I guess there's an interesting kind of question where it's we have to separate the idea of of computers doing the thinking from the, I guess, the classic who benefits uh, stuff. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into the conversations about what automation is meant for us now in the modern day. We are we are creating the ability to basically do, for a machine to basically do anything for us, even creative stuff now, right? Uh, I'm a freelance writer, and I have to worry about the possibility that there's a, an AI that can write a better article about uh, Jean-Luc Picard's romantic life than I can write. Um because just from collecting all this information, uh, that wouldn't be a problem if, A, there was an actual need for articles about Picard, Jean-Luc Picard's life, and we needed to create more than humans could make in order to satisfy that need. And if it didn't just mean that the people who published it were just going to pocket the money because they pushed a button that says, make me this article. Well, let me put your mind at ease, Dylan. Uh, I think they're never going to be able to write a better article about Jean-Luc Picard's love life than you can. Uh, but also, and I'm sa- I say that somewhat jokingly, but no, but, but in all seriousness, uh, the idea of AI writing better than a human is actually... There are certain technical issues that I think people need to understand about AI. We shouldn't get off a whole thing about real-world AI. <laughs> um, but, like, what it's doing is not writing with computer with its mighty computer brain. It is essentially amalgamating and remixing and spewing out what it's fed, uh, which is part of the reason uh, why there's, I think, a hard limit on how good the art it makes or the writing it makes is ever going to be because it's, uh, as they say, garbage in, garbage out, gigo. Um, and um, the reason it's accepted and being seen excitedly isn't because people want a high quality of uh, product. It's because they want more product, as you, as you basically said. They want this shovelware of just feeding it in and that'll fill, the, that'll, that'll fill up the space that we need to fill to make the clicks, to make the bucks. And, and it, it, I mean, going back to, uh, as we said, it is an, for, uh, a, a, an aspect of capitalism, not an aspect of what humans actually need and so forth. Um, and I think that was very relevant uh, to what you were saying there. I, I, I think um, uh, there's actually uh, another science fiction to shift a little bit here. There's another uh, big science fiction uh, series, not to keep talking about other things that aren't Star Trek, but this, I think this is relevant, which is the uh, the Culture series by um, Ian M. Banks, uh, which I don't know how familiar either of you are with those, but they really bit. do feel... Yeah, they they really feel uh, like somebody wrote his, uh, like Banks basically said, I'll write my own Star Trek. Uh, it actually, the first book I think came out uh, just before Next Generation uh, premiered. So it's, uh, and it's in some ways, I think it, it might actually had an impact on Next Generation. Uh, but it's very much the idea of 
a utopian science fiction society. Like it is his version of an ideal society. It's not riven by well, there are wars, but it's a compli- for complicated. They're for ex- they're outside factors, not inside inside the culture. The society is run by computers, by artificial intelligences, which know what humans want, what the, the, the beings that live in the culture want better than they themselves would. would. And uh, so the, the people of the culture are free to pursue, like the Federation, pursue art, pursue uh, all the best things in life, uh, including doing some important work, like making contact with other cultures. That's something that only uh, the people can do. But the artificial intelligences are quite literally doing... Uh, running the show um that's actually very interesting and banks again he was very leftist he was a socialist guy there's interesting things about the culture novels like the fact that basically everyone is not trans but non-binary everyone can switch gender at at random if they want uh everyone has drugs built in they can mainline drug whatever drugs they want whenever they feel like it because it's in their biology uh there's a lot of other ideas like that uh and in some ways it kind of goes further than star trek would in terms of what would it really be like to because because in star trek you have the society of oh they're striving and working and it's 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 a militaristic starfleet society that we threw through that lens and that starfleet tends to be depicted as the people who want the best of the best but also it's roddenberry's love for uh the military he's being an old navy guy um this is much more like, well, what What if we wanted to party? <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, yes, you have the ability to just go wild and party for hundreds of years as for your entire life, and nobody will stop you, and everyone will, it'll, it'll be great. Uh, of course, there's still conflicts and things that happen within this, this society, or there wouldn't be a story. But, um, you know, it, it's much, uh, it, it does embrace that idea uh, very well. It's, 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 it's an interesting series in that regard. Um, and that, that goes back to something that we've talked about a bit before, and this actually loops back around. I am getting back to a point, I promise, um, about how Star Trek does have ultimately a bit of a uh, capital L liberal mindset, which is to say not as far leftist as you might think, not as progressive as you might think. Uh, like I say earlier, it, it's almost like it it followed the momentum of communism, but going, but what if we could have all that stuff without a political revolution? What if technology could do it instead? And also just like, what if we could have essentially liberal mid-60s or mid-90s American viewpoint projected outwards into the cosmos? And if you're not going to radically reshape society, which in some ways Star Trek is not, in some ways it literally is just Americans Mm -hmm. in space. more or less the way we recognize it, but they have all this good stuff like, as you say, unvarnished plenty and so on. The solution to that is going to be technology. Okay, we didn't have a political revolution, uh, so we have technology, and that's what solves all our problems. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think that you're you're hitting the nail on the head, but I think it's interesting that there is there is still a... There's, of course, the, the really kind of terrifying idea that even in the optimistic sunny future of the of star trek uh all of us here in the year 2023 are still completely screwed uh and we had to come out on the other side of world war three and the post-atomic horror and the eugenics wars which we've slid down the timeline figure out where that's gonna work and um and that there still has to be there's still like things have to get worse before we'll consider that kind of paradigm shift but then there's also a social revolution driven by uh, the idea of the unifying force of learning that we're not alone in the universe and the way that that has to change the way that all of us think and how we relate to each other, which 
is a political revolution in a sense. We have to be we have to be willing to give up the idea of nations inside of the social construct of humanity and look at ourselves as one unit. That's really hard to do until there's an other. Yeah, it's if anything, it's a yeah. political revolution driven by new information rather than internally. It's this vast external force, sort of the political equivalent of a meteorite strike driving change. And that goes back exactly to what Adam is talking about, that by, with some exceptions, by and large, Star Trek presents a utopian future without hard choices, <laughs> or a utopian future that arises because that's the way that history goes, as if it were some inexorable engine, without that much in the way of individual agency on the part of... Uh, we achieve universal plenty because technology reaches that. We reach political unity because new information renders the nation state obsolete there's obviously exceptions to that like the bell riots which is just presented as a conscious movement that drives a change in how society understands itself that's closer to the idea of mankind taking control of its own destiny and rejecting the past but going back exactly to what adam said the problem with the liberal idea underlying star trek is this idea that it's money for nothing in a very literal sense um, that the idea that you can have a better world simply because that's the way we're headed. And the other problem with that, obviously, is it goes to Star Trek's consistently uneasy relationship with societies that don't map onto the ideals of 1960s America. Like, in the original series, we see it presented as an explicit... Um, exception to the, the prime directive that you can interfere in other cultures that have become stagnant and to be clear stagnant as judged by captain kirk after a solid half hour <laughs> really hard about it. um which is a that's that's an awful idea like <laughs> Because it suggests that the only cultures that are immune from the, uh, the only cultures that are genuinely bound by the Prime Directive are the ones where Starfleet is pretty much okay with what they look like already, or where Star, uh, Starfleet judges that they will they will someday resemble us by their own motion, but that if they don't, it's okay for us to give them a, a push. And that assimilationist notion, that idea that culture is that there is a right way for a society to be organised and that societies which do not share the same priorities, do not share the same technology, do not have the same relationship between technology and social progress as the Federation do, are in some... Feel, fall differently in terms of some sort of hierarchy of civilizations, And that's fucked up. <laughs> there is... In, in, in the effort to try and create sort of the... To extend the philosophy of Star Trek that we all have more in common than we have different, right? And we can celebrate those differences because at the core, we all want the same things. When we extend that beyond what we can see and beyond what we have as an experience as human beings walking the earth and communicating with each other and create the idea that not just on this planet is that true, to name drop a Twilight Zone episode, people are alike all over. And we... Um, that... Everyone's on the same sort of parallel evolutionary arc with with different variations, essentially the philosophical equivalent of bumpy foreheads, right? And it's yes. it is it is kind of a destructive idea to think because then we're creating it 
we are creating limits. We're setting a, a, a bar right there as to what we will and will not accept as what a society can look like. Uh, and to the credit of the most recent season of Discovery, which I know that you have not seen yet, Douglas, but is uh, they do Correct. they do get a little bit more into a truly alien alien uh, in a positive and very kind of compassionate way. So I think that is maybe growing. But yeah, there is there. Gosh, we're chewing on a lot here. And this. <laughs> I'm going to say this as somebody who's been talking about Star Trek with people for most of 30 years. This might be the most interesting conversation I've ever had about Star Trek. Ah, that's so sweet. Thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, it's interesting because this does, like you've pointed out how this gets to the root of Star Trek in some ways. Like we're talking about like cultural reference, uh, reference, but it, it, it is tied to how our viewpoint reflects technology like that is that is animating a lot of what we're talking about here because we're our technology even our culture that exists right now let alone the culture that we've imagined in star trek uh, has this underlying assumptions that are built in with a lot about technology which is built in a lot about the post-world war ii uh western capitalist assumption with a dash of like uh influence from socialism and so forth communist regimes uh, and like all that, the heady stew of the 20th century and our ideas about trying to be good people and trying to be a good uh, society, but not always, always, you know, uh, looking at our underlying assumptions. <laughs> and uh, it does lead to that. I think one of the most um, uh, telling aspects of recent Trek that like a thing I can point to that really puts a, a, a perfect pin in what we're talking about is uh, the infamous bits on discovery where they reference Elon Musk. And, <laughs> I knew uh, that was going to come up today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was talking about this. We actually watched uh, with some friends of mine, we were watching a movie machete kills the little scene sequel to machete starring, uh, 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 um, Danny Trejo. Uh, Danny Trejo. Yeah. And, um, it's, the crazy thing about that movie is that it loses interest in its own premise halfway through. It starts becoming this weird science fiction thing. Uh, and at the end, Elon Musk shows up in person uh, as one of several. Uh, this was, I think, 2011, something like that. This movie was made. Um, of course, he shows up in Iron Man as or Iron Man 2, I think. Um, he was beloved hmm. by Hollywood. And we're already memory holing this aspect of Elon Musk that, oh, people used to love him. And not just like, now he's like, he's gone full white supremacist, basically, which he possibly always was. But Hollywood liberals used to love Elon Musk because he said he was for all the things that they thought was good and great and would help people. Saving the environment, getting to outer space, all the Star Trek stuff. And Star Trek said, hey, let's celebrate Elon Musk for that exact reason. And it shows you how you can slip into uh, hero worship, I guess, is the way. And then suddenly find that the hero is not the right person at all. Um, there's another historical uh, continuum, which, um, interesting, I think we talked about this in the one about how Star Trek maps the future uh, called the great man theory of history, which was uh, hmm. kind of a go-to thing in the, in the 19th century. I think that was kind of the, the basic uh, principle of history, which kind of went on the whole, Oh, Napoleon is the one and Abraham Lincoln. And then eventually like Lenin and they changed history. It's that great man who comes along at that one key moment in history, which is something Star Trek has certainly done. Uh, Edith Keeler, all that kind of stuff. Um, Khan, um, you know, uh, 
I guess, uh, Gabriel Bell. Uh, they were key people at key points in history, and without them, the timeline will be shaken and, and completely destroyed. And again, going back to Marxism, that's actually counter to Marxism, which tended to look at the outcome of historical processes more than single individuals who came in and, and made a huge difference and, and altered the course of history. Um, and I think that's actually interesting. So we're, you know, you're seeing Star Trek falling back into that by looking at Elon Musk and thinking of him <laughs> as the guy who's going to change history. And then the irony is that if we do get the stuff that he's promising, uh, it's going to not be because of him directly. It's going to be because of uh, historical processes. It's going to be because of the push that we get from uh, from history. But I think that's a great example of how uh buying into technology as the savior of mankind and only technology uh, can really lead you down a dark path. I think that's, that's, that's almost the purest distillation of that, <laughs> that we, yeah. that you're going to get. Yeah. Wind it back to what Douglas was saying about the idea of like, we have to always remember that even when the individual authors of episodes are, you know, far left, Star Trek is still a commercial product created and distributed by large corporation who has their own limits and their own input. And there's nothing that makes like liberal Hollywood more feel better about themselves than the idea that um, we can make better capitalism. Uh, I mean, that's more or less the whole sort of neoliberal Democratic Party here in the U.S., their their whole flaw is the idea they really they still their their foe is the is a corporatist party, but they think that they can defeat them by being the good corporatist party, right? So when you have figures like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, the richest and most powerful people in the world who both profess to love Star Trek and plainly don't get it, even a little bit, um, it's because they see the idea that simply, just like you're saying, Adam, we can improve with technology. If we have the technology, the rest will work out. But it is the processes. It is the idea of, okay, we have these means to do these things. How are, for what are we using it? Uh, and who is, uh, who, who, is, who is benefiting and who's getting uh, thrown away? And we are in a situation where the more you automate, the more you remove, uh, the more you replace human labor with automation but don't replace uh don't replace the gains of that labor with a, a a a social safety net that can accommodate everyone uh you're you're just creating a really you're like you're robert moses you're creating a a mechanical system of that's ingenious but this just tramples on everyone underneath it yeah the Robert Moses analogy is fantastic. And I think <laughs> it's it is really interesting to think what would the original series have made of Robert Moses prior to the publication of the Power Broker, and or rather prior to his, his ultimate fall from power. Um, would a figure like that, the idea of using technology as a means of driving social convenience, have been embraced as uh, have been embraced as part of this idea that of uh, you know the, 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 this idea of what the future looks like sorry adam i think no i actually wanted to ask because i'm not familiar with robert moses so maybe you could explain to me and thus to anyone who doesn't know who robert moses is uh what that's about so uh, oh adam you've made me so happy <laughs> <clears throat> so robert moses was a city planner and public official in 
uh, New York from the early 20th century to the 1960s. Although he failed in his one bid for electoral office in the 1934 governor's election, he was for decades the most powerful man in New York City and indeed in New York State, exercising vast power over the laying of roads, the planning of neighbourhoods, the situating of parks and public amenities through a variety of appointed posts he held, which basically gave him complete control over New York City's development. At the time, he was venerated as this visionary figure who was making suburban development possible, who was planning this vast infrastructure for the enjoyment of parks and natural reserves and waterways in New York. But he did so in a way that demolished uh, neighbourhoods of African-Americans and other minorities in New York City, and in a way which ultimately served the interests of um, people like him, of white, middle-class, conservative New Yorkers, even to the extent, famously, of racism being built into the architecture of the city itself, with his famed highways and bridges being built too low for buses to pass underneath them so that only suburbanites driving cars could access his prized beaches and parks and so that people catching the bus in the inner city could not. This was all ultimately immortalised in Robert Caro's The Power Broker, which I read like I was hooked on it like some kind of drug when I was 19. <laughs> I I was the only 19-year-old at Bondi Beach slugging around a giant 1200 book 1200 page book on new york city (laughs) and i felt so cool dylan i are you i don't even know if you're american but if you are american do you have anything to add i mean i'm a new yorker uh i grew up in new jersey which Ah. i will add is uh is a fine place newark airport is not the finest example of new jersey that there is I literally Did just listened to your Strange that? New Worlds episode, so it's all that? very fresh for me. Um, yeah, you were talking about but, having spent yes. a long time in New York, New York Airport, uh, Douglas. We had a whole discussion about that. I remember. Yes. I remember it well. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, no, you nailed that. Uh, you, you pulled that information out as if you had written, like, the, the abstract of an essay and then plucked it from memory from your mind. And I was very <laughs> impressed by that. Like... Like you, y'all who are listening can't see, but I'm looking at video of, of the two co-hosts and like you, uh, Douglas closed his eyes and like read it on the back of his eyelids, and it was very, <laughs> it, it was very impressive. <laughs> he went to his mind palace. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did. Okay, um, yeah. Well, no, okay, I, I, I yeah, you, I've got nothing more to say. You, you really, you really just did give the 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 abstract of the Robert Moses yeah. class. But yeah, okay, so yeah, exactly. The, the idea that it's built in, and I know about redlining and stuff like that uh, with suburban uh, neighborhoods and so on. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the things that are built in and that, um, you know, again, Star Trek is just such a, 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 it's such a good, to use a fancy word, synecdoche, a good, if you like, uh, metaphor for America in that it's, America's got all this stuff, this nasty stuff built in that they've been trying to, get away from for centuries and like the, the the best parts of america are trying to leave that behind and evolve into something else uh and star trek is a metaphor for that but then at the same time there'll be stuff built in that they don't notice is built in and they won't be able to shake it off entirely and that's what you know that's where the problem yes. t- starts to come in unfortunately um and that's uh you know that is yeah. that is really something you see in 
in uh, in Star Trek where they're like, if they're thinking about it and they're trying to develop it uh, in a, you know, they're trying to make a comment on it, then it gets discussed at some length, usually quite intelligently. But if they're, you know, they're just writing a story where, okay, well, we've got a trade treaty with the with this race and so forth and stuff. Like, that's so much of what Star Trek ends up being about as a plot motivator of like, yeah, we're here to negotiate a trade treaty with this race and this species. And you kind of wonder, like, what, how much trade do you need with other species <laughs> if you're the Federation and you have replicators and you have all this, like, you're one of the biggest high technology uh, groups in the, in the, in the system. Uh, there is, I suppose, like, there, the, the real thing is that you've got to uh, guard yourself against the Klingons and the Romulans and the Cardassians. Uh, but that only occasionally gets brought up. It's usually like, well, we're, because if they're constantly negotiating treaties with other races to keep the Klingons out, then you start to look more militaristic and it starts to look less utopian. So they have them go, okay, oh, they're there to negotiate trade treaties. Um, but like, again, how much trade do you need? It's not, it's not a, a constant thing. I, I remember also somebody, um, I can't remember who it was, was uh, talking about the Enterprise pilot. Um, and to be fair, this is Enterprise, so still relatively early in human development of the star trek universe but they pointed out that you see this vast cornfield in the in the pilot which is there for the purposes of the story for a klingon a big action scene where, where they chase a klingon through a cornfield which is great um and um but somebody pointed out it's like large-scale uh agriculture of something like corn is actually exactly the kind of thing you would probably want to rethink in a utopian uh, society <laughs> like star trek that's not even I, did, I didn't even think about that or wasn't even aware of that. But, like, that's an interesting point. Well, that's in Oklahoma, isn't it? And I have never been to Oklahoma because I spent my entire time in the United States in fucking Newark. <laughs> but, as I understand it... Yeah. It's, I think it's actually like, in Iowa, Oklahoma's... that scene, uh, because it's, And I think that's specifically because that's where Captain Kirk is from. I think that was actually mm. the, the reference I they think were it's, making. But I, I think it's oh. Oklahoma. Bro- Broken Bow... Oh. I'm pretty sure Broken Bow's yeah. in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. You're wrong. Never, I'm wrong. Never mind. Okay. Yeah, because... Uh, because uh, Kirk's from Iowa and um, Archer is from upstate New York. Yeah. Now, Broken Bow is and will be in the future in Oklahoma. But as I understand it, Oklahoma is like prairies. The idea of it being dense, lush <laughs> cornfields, yeah, it does either speak to continued technological development of what the earth looks like, which has its own problems, well, the, or unsustainable agriculture. The, the, uh, the only thing that... Go yeah, go Sorry, on. the argument that, as I understand it, is that, yes, it's nice to turn the prairie into, you know, a lavish... Uh, agricultural land but even the the act of uh growing corn has some environmental uh problems like you're you're getting water in from somewhere that should be used somewhere else um you're using up land not always very efficiently corn the fact that we grow so much corn in uh north america is actually a a a big thing in terms of how the politics evolved uh to grow corn that was what we were going to grow when we could be growing more efficient crops and things like that so there's a whole discussion about that i'm not necessarily saying this person was right but it was raising an interesting point of just like well we assume a waving field of corn in the midwest of america in the year 20 2061 or whatever it was and they're like well if it's really a changed society maybe you wouldn't see that that's all I love that idea that the future of Star Trek looks like that because they're still subject to the tyranny of the Iowa corners. <laughs> still, still maintain their iron grip on the Federation. Well, I mean, Dylan. it's trapped under the iron grip of trying to create an iconic moment for television, right? But it's they want they 
if the idea of Enterprise is, you know, it's supposed to be the one that's more closer to us and relatable, beginning with a classic alien crashes to Earth in a cornfield scene with a guy literally has a big, like, futuristic shotgun uh, that he shoots Tiny, Tom, Tiny, Ron, uh, Tiny Ron Lister with. Um, but it's... But it is interesting to think about, like, at that point, in 2151, I think we're still doing livestock, right? Humans haven't moved off of... Um, did they ever say that they've moved off of like eating eating real meat at that point? That's that's a later development, right? I yeah, they're they're vague about. I'm that. sure they must eat steak. Yeah. But I mean, by the 24th century, we're no longer we're explicitly no longer enslaving animals as food for food, which means we don't need the corn to feed uh, to feed the cows for beef. Uh, and we've moved and uh, the sh- uh, the enterprise is not running on ethanol, so we don't need the corn for that. And I don't know, it's interesting, like, we're so, we have such a difficult idea even conceiving how different the world would look without the the economy that we currently have. I almost used the word enjoy, which would be stretching it. Um, but, uh, like, there's there's the, the nitpick in um, uh, that moment in uh, the, uh, the 2009 Star Trek when young James Kirk drives his uh, his uncle's a uh, classic car into a gorge in Iowa where there's no big gorges in Iowa, <laughs> uh, which, again, is driven by the fact that we, we've established, we know, we've inherited the idea that James Kirk grew up in Iowa and we want to drive this car off a cliff, so we need to have a gorge. But also, it's 200 years in the future. What, how, what, how, what makes us think that Iowa is going to look like Iowa? It's mm. it's hard. Yeah. Like we, there are so many things that we think of as absolute. Among them, I mean, entrenched in our in our culture is the idea that um, there will always be some version of capitalism, uh, and that's and that drives so much of like what we do and why we do it. That is so separate from what Star Trek is, unless the plot demands otherwise. <laughs> I think it. Go ahead. I, I actually I have. Oh no no. So I'll I'll be very quick. All I have to say about that, and I, this might be the final thing I have to contribute to the discussion, is that you mentioned before the idea that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk love Star Trek without really getting it, and the problem that we have to engage with on this show is, how do we know they're the ones who are <laughs> Star Trek? Oh God, I hope not. This... I hope not. <laughs> I I, well, this, I do believe that there's as, as both the, the yeah, author is dead. There's more than one way to read everything. But if what you got away well, exactly. from Star Trek was, uh, what if I owned all business <laughs> and all other businesses went out, and I just got to have everything and decide what to do with it? I feel like that's a really weird message to take out of Star Trek. Well, as both of you have noted throughout the episode, Star Trek is based on this fun there's this fundamental deep-rooted similarity with the united states it may not be the united states but it's built upon that bedrock it is the idea of something that has evolved out of contemporary conditions in america that it's it's if you like that hybridity of an american foundation but with this new thing that has grown on top of it what if bezos and musk are just looking at different elements looking at different elements of it or seeing different things in it to what we are and they're regarding those foundational elements as being more part of star trek than we do it's that's the problem with having a future that's sort of been put together out of lots of lumped together different influences some from the present and some from this idealized future that people pick and choose what they regard as being 
people can pick and choose how much like the United States the future is going to look and Bezos and Musk see very much a place for themselves and the world they do very well in in the future of Star Trek. Adam, yeah, no, it's off. fine. I, I should note, actually, I mentioned the culture novels and apparently Bezos is a huge fan of those too, uh, which again, <sighs> like it's, it's explicitly anti-capitalist. But again, he just, I think it's as simple as, hey, cool spaceship. It's the meme with the thing shooting over his head. You know, hey, cool spaceship. You know, capitalism is no more. He goes like, ah, that's cool. Uh, but uh, I think, um, I think uh, the uh, the one last thing. I think we're sort of uh, coming to uh, 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 an ending here, um, and we're all pretty. Uh, our voices are getting sore. I want to raise one last little point here, uh, which you know, counter to everything we've said so far, or most of what we said so far. Um, is there actually a possibility? To, to what point should we consider that maybe tech? can actually shake things up we talked about it a little already actually uh, as uh, douglas was saying if you know if aliens landed tomorrow and brought a lot a message of love and hope and peace and logic um and uh it really shook us up enough uh not just spiritually and and and, and uh culturally but also literally like oh okay fast and light travel is possible there's tons of planets out there we could be uh exploring uh they probably are willing to give us a little at least a little bit of a guidance in refining our own technology and our own culture um you know to what degree is it actually true that technology will shape uh the way people think because i think there is uh some truth to that and while a lot of it has been negative and it's almost never entirely positive uh there are a few examples i i, I would actually say that for all the horrible, horrible stuff uh, social media has caused, uh, I think that is an example of a technology that's been mostly a net good. Uh, it, it really did enable a lot of people who weren't having their voices heard to have their voices heard. Uh, it's enabled people to cooperate and, and, and uh, function in a mass scale in a way that... Uh, that we never had before when media was kind of gatekept and so on. Uh, again, I'm not in any way denying the many, many, many problems this has also caused and the fact that this could kill us all yet. Uh, but I think, you know, I'm enough of an optimist uh, to think that um, it came out of, uh, it, the, it, it's developed things in a generally positive direction. Um, to use one example, I think also, of course, things like, you know, uh, better medicine, better, uh, means of feeding the people, uh, certain types of automation have generally improved our quality of life. I don't think you can deny that at all. And that has then fed into our culture and our politics in ways that are probably positive. Uh, for all the problems with uh, America, uh, I think they developed a very, like, again, this is just hopelessly sappy of me, but I think uh, American culture uh, and, you know, other Western cultures in the last uh, half of the 20th century developed a, a more humanist viewpoint and it was partly because of the capabilities of what we could accomplish with technology um, and the, the fact that we we were now living better lives than we had before and we sort of stopped adding with this idea that well, we have to kill each other to, to, to eat and so forth. I, I think there are ways in which technology really have in, uh, uh, improved our lives. It's just that you have to really look at the bad that came with the good. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's actually wrong to say that anyway. Um, well, social media is a really great example. I think it's a really, uh, cause it is 
reshaping our world practically as much as the replicator, right? What these things have in common is that they do level a playing field. And I think that kind of stands in for technology in general. So long as technology that can be used as a liberating force is not co-opted, um, I think about I think about Moneyball, right? This money for those who are not familiar uh, and haven't seen the movie because that's all I've done. I'm not a huge baseball person, but um, the the baseball team, the Oakland Athletics, had less money than all these other teams, right? And they couldn't win games because they couldn't hire the big players. They couldn't. They didn't have the resources to to put it together. So they used technology, and they used all these uh, this this uh, this algorithmic system called sabermetrics to figure out how to more efficiently use what little resources they had, and essentially reduce the game to buying runs. Right? They're saying instead of trying to get the big star players, we're just going to look at the numbers: who can get on base most often. And why are they undervalued by the market? And they put together a winning team out of scraps uh, because they had the computing power to do it, right? And that gave them an advantage that other teams did not have. And it is able to take this, it's able to level the playing field. However, it didn't really level the playing field for two reasons. One, as soon as the teams that had more money realized this was a way to do, they could do it. They applied their resources through this system. And the playing field that had been leveled by, by technology then became just as slanted as it was before. And two, once these players, who had once been considered the lifeblood of the league, a league built on charisma and star power and narratives around players, could be replaced by lines of code, essentially. This person equals this number of runs for this number of years. Players became more expendable. Careers got shorter. Salaries got lower. So every kind of technological, every kind of technological leap has this arc, and it's really kind of depressing. Social media has the power to elevate, to lift voices that did not have the same amplification as the wealthy, as the powerful, as the, 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 the global north, as media institutions, right? And it allows for grassroots movements like hashtag me too. It allows for the, uh, George, the, the murder of George Floyd to become an international event and conversation. But once these tools get into the hands of the people who already have the power, your Trumps, your Musks, your your uh, your your large governments and your and your financial institutions and whatnot, the people who already have the power, so long as those tools are still being used disproportionately, uh, are still more disproportionately useful to those who don't want things to change and don't want things to get better, that's really the limitation. And that's hard to contend with because there's really no way to only let poor people use Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> that... I think you nailed it. Thank you. That's perfect. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I have just one last thing to say. that it, it, it sort of hits upon the central, both what you said and what Adam has said, hits upon the central paradox of this podcast, which is that an Australian and a Canadian get together to use an American video call service to complain from a vaguely leftist perspective about an American science fiction show <laughs> continuing a conversation that we started on an American social media site, that we are at once trying to stand outside and critique these imperialist capitalist institutions within the context of 
a medium that only exists and a connection that only exists because of those institutions and how far we can at once benefit from those technologies and yet stand outside them. And I think exactly as Dylan has noted, it's that issue that technological change has enormous potential to lift subaltern voices or to lift alternate perspectives. Not that either of us are subaltern voice, we are both definitely in the position of alternate perspectives. But that at the same time, the problem with technological progress without political progress is that it allows people who already have that power in society to subordinate as they do everything else. Even though it does contain that possibility for undermining those structures of power that allow that process to happen in the first place. And I'm done. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to, place to end it. And man, we got deep on this one. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we solved all the problems of the universe, I think. Oh, if I, boy. Uh, I'll check the transcript, <laughs> but I think it's all there. Um, and uh, I, yeah, yeah. Just so remember, it's, the secrets of the universe are buried on this Star Trek podcast that has like 100 listeners, basically. Um, more, more fools those who aren't listening. Yes. Well, maybe in the future... <laughs> they will miss out. Yeah, exactly. In the future, they'll dig it up and they'll they'll realize what we were at, uh, how that we were ahead of our time. No, we'll show them all. Eventually. <laughs> we'll be dead, but, you know, we'll, we'll be seen as geniuses, so it, it works out. Um, so, okay, that's... Uh, I think we're uh, wrapping it up for uh, uh, this week. Um, and um, I did want to ask, um, uh, just a reminder that I have my other podcast, uh, What Mad Universe, which is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the other things. Uh, I have my uh, comics and so forth at www.fantasmic, with a P, phantasmictales.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at Prankster36. Um, Dylan, did you have anything you'd like to plug for this podcast? Oh, I sure do. I'm a full-time freelancer with a three-month-old child, so you bet I got things to plug. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can find me and my writing on social media at Dylan Roth, D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. You remember that because it's Dylan like Bob, Roth like David Lee. Uh, I have... uh, my people listening to this podcast will probably be interested in reading my review of Picard season three, which just went up on observer.com. Uh, I'm medium about it. <laughs> you can read the more for, for read, read the article for details. Um, my band, no Jersey is starting to spin back up after my little paternity league leave paternity leave after my little paternity leave. Um, but I think prob- possibly just as, uh, more relevant to listeners here is I am the co-host of a podcast called, are you afraid of the dark universe where my co-host, uh, Dalton Deshane and I are tasked with expanding the aborted universal cinematic universe that was supposed to begin with 2017's the mummy one movie at a time, basically writing pitches and scriptments for a new movie every other week. Uh, and until we've created an infinity saga starring Tom Cruise, the mummy. Yeah, it's really neat. You should check it out. Definitely, uh, definitely recommend it. And, uh, Douglas, anything you want to add or you're doing your nothing to add live long. I do my legal stuff. I provide legal services for money. Yes. If you are in the market for legal services, hire a solicitor who can then approach me to determine my rates and availability. And you live in Australia, <laughs> presumably. Um, anyway. And I, and I, indeed, I live in Australia. <laughs> um, live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the flip side. <laughs> <laughs>